Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges, and I'm a pediatric hospitalist here at the Medical College of Georgia. This episode is the final part of our series on trisomy 13 and 18. Today's episode will be somewhat different than others on our podcast. We are stepping away from discussing clinical concepts and taking this opportunity to listen to a family's experience in caring for their son with trisomy 13. To do that, I'm excited to be joined by Wiley and Jenny Purcell. Wiley and Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Hi, we're glad to be here. Hey, Zach. Thanks for having us on the podcast. To get things started, tell us something about each of yourselves and introduce us to your family. I'm Wiley Purcell. I'm an endodontist here in Augusta, Georgia. Jenny and I moved here to Augusta in 2012 for training. We also have four children whose ages are seven, five, three, and Samuel, who is almost 17 months old. I'm Jenny, um, and I currently do a little bit of everything. Um, My past life, I was a middle school social studies teacher, and now my job is to keep everyone in our house alive and somewhat happy. Our My 73-year-old mom also lives with us, so I take care of a lot of humans. Fantastic. Definitely a full house. So let's jump right into Samuel's story, if that's fine with each of y'all. So Jenny, if you would like, tell us about your pregnancy with him and how you eventually received a prenatal diagnosis of trisomy 13. Early on in the pregnancy, we, um, we wanted to know the sex of the baby. So we opted to have the cell-free DNA test, and that was around 11 weeks. And the test came back inconclusive. We were told not to worry. They would just retest in four weeks. So at 15 weeks, we retested. And at that time, the test came back and gave us a one in two chance of trisomy 13. I remember asking my OBGYN on the phone when she called, I said, is that Downs? And she said, oh no, it's much worse. I just looked up the statistics and the average life expectancy is eight days. And so that was the beginning of just waves of devastation. We were immediately referred to a high-risk OB Um, After seeing the high-risk OB and having about a two-hour-long ultrasound, Samuel, who is our little boy with trisomy 13, was presenting with a few markers that were characteristic of trisomy 13. Um, One in particular is that they saw an extra finger, and we had done enough Googling prior to that ultrasound to know that that was a very classic characteristic. And so that led us to have an amniocentesis done that day. And by 17 weeks, we confirmed trisomy 13. Terminating was not an option for us, and none of our providers pressured us to make that decision. And so from that point forward, putting aside the emotional grief that we began walking through, um, physically, my pregnancy was very normal compared to my other ones up until around 30 weeks. Okay, very good. You definitely take a similar course that other families have when they receive a prenatal diagnosis of trisomy 13. Using the cell-free DNA testing is quite common, and seeing abnormalities on that is not conclusive, but definitely warrants further investigation. Tell me, what were your initial thoughts after receiving that diagnosis? You mentioned grief, but what else went into that? I would, I think devastation is the word. 
I remember um, sitting in my bedroom when I got the phone call from the OBGYN and hanging up the phone and thinking, this is my worst nightmare. I'm going to carry a baby, you know, we'll say nine, 10 months, and then they're going to die within hours to days. And so I'm carrying a baby for the purpose of holding them for a few hours. It was so hard not to just go to the place that he had already died. So we felt like it was about a six-month death that was happening just over and over and over again. With every kick, with every ultrasound, with every doctor's appointment, we were kind of reliving what we thought was going to be the death of this child. My goodness, I can't imagine going through that every day and how exhausting that must have been as you kind of neared the end of your pregnancy. Thinking about all of the concerns that you had and the unknown, what other resources did you use to learn about trisomy 13, you know, other than the traditional ones like using your OBGYN and what she provided you? I used SOFT, which is a support organization for trisomy. They have a webpage. So I looked up some information there. There's a Trisomy 13 Facebook page that has provided a good bit of support and just pictures of Trisomy 13 children that are living. And then another organization that was really helpful prenatally was called String of Pearls. And it helped prepare us for what we thought would either be a stillbirth or a short life. So it provided ways for us to celebrate him, such as we were given a teddy bear where we could record the heartbeat and place it inside the teddy bear. So it was just a way to help us celebrate his life, no matter how short it was. And they were a big part of that. That's great. We'll be sure to link to everything that you mentioned in our show notes for our listeners. So thinking big picture about Samuel, what other information did you have about his health during your pregnancy prior to delivery? Outside of that initial two-hour sonogram where they saw the extra digit on the hand and the extra digit on the foot, as well as hydronephrosis and uh, possible micronathia, we did get a echocardiogram at 25 weeks in which the results were fairly uneventful, uh, no major defects noted. We had routine sonograms with both Jenny's OBGYN and the high-risk OBGYN. They were just keeping a really close eye on Samuel's development. Part of the reason they were keeping such a close eye was one of our main goals for him was to have a live birth. And so if they started noting a decrease in heart rate or maybe stagnant development, he wasn't growing, one of the thoughts was that we may induce early so that we had an opportunity to to meet our son and to hold him uh, before he died. That's really insightful hearing that having that live birth was really key to your expectations. And I think learning more about our patients' expectations is, is so important, especially when you think about the topic of prenatal counseling. And I want to take a moment to focus in right there. For our listeners, thinking back to part one of our discussion on this topic with Paul Mann, there is a lot of variability in prenatal counseling and medical care offered to babies with trisomy 13 or 18. What was your experience like in meeting with the NICU team here at the Children's Hospital of Georgia? So our first official meeting was with the neonatologist, Dr. Mann and Dr. Stansfield, and that was around 28 weeks. Now, my first interaction with a member of that team was less formal. Dr. Stansfield and I actually go to the same church and run in some of the same social circles, and so I knew who he was. Not quite sure he knew who I was, 
So one day after church, I just walk up to him and I introduce myself and I proceed to tell him all about Samuel's diagnosis and and everything that we were thinking, you know, typical first conversation stuff. And uh, what he said next stuck with me probably more than just about any other conversation with any other doctor I've had. The first thing out of his mouth was, congratulations, that's awesome. Your family's growing. You know, up to this point, all my interactions have been, oh, I'm so sorry, or I can't imagine what your family's going through, or how are you doing? Here's this neonatologist that deals with the hard stuff every day, and and he says, congratulations. That stuck with me. And that really carried through that actual conversation we had with Dr. Mann and Dr. Stansfield. They went through all the test results that we had had. And and I remember at one point they said something like, you know, these test results are really encouraging. Seems like Samuel's doing pretty good. They just kind of kept talking about, you know, we just want to celebrate his life, whatever that looks like, whether it's a minute, whether it's a day, whether it's weeks or months, we want to celebrate who he is and know who he is. So again, that's really insightful. Hearing how important it was for you to hear congratulations on your growing family. That's something that for our listeners, we can all take home when meeting with these families who may have a prenatal diagnosis of a life-limiting disease, congratulating them and celebrating this moment with them can be so, so impactful. So next, I wanted to come back to your goals of care for Samuel. So generally speaking, you know, what were those goals leading up to his delivery and how did you come to that decision? I'm going to be a little careful with the terms I use here because I think when you're talking about these kind of prenatal diagnoses, the terms can be a little tricky, such as comfort care, palliative care, just wanting them to be comfortable, all things that we learned very quickly are lingo that I think are loosely thrown around and everybody has different ideas of what that means. And so initially we wanted him to be comfortable. And I'm, if you could see me, I'm putting that in quotes. We wanted to hold him. We wanted him to be comfortable. We wanted to hold him. But our definition of comfortable quickly evolved. We initially would have said, I'm going to put this kind of in quotes again, we didn't want anything done to him that would cause discomfort. Again, that began to unravel very quickly. And so we began processing what all of that meant. And what we realized was that not feeding him could cause discomfort. And so we then had to process whether or not we were okay with an NG tube. And the decisions, again, just begin coming quickly. And so the more we unpacked that term comfort, the more we realized that we wanted to do things that would bring any baby relief. We did not want to cause him distress. And so that meant we wanted to feed him. That meant we wanted to offer breathing support. That meant we wanted to deal with infections. Dr. Mann and Dr. Stansfield in that meeting that Wiley just mentioned used the terms stabilize and evaluate to help us put words to what we wanted to do. And so that kind of gave us the freedom to live in the moment of the pregnancy and just to enjoy being pregnant and not feel like we had to figure everything out about him before he was born that we could have him at delivery and then they could stabilize him, figure out who he really was, and then we could make hard decisions if need be after Samuel was born. 
Very good. So it seems having that general mindset that you wanted him to be comfortable, you wanted to offer what any other baby would receive, you know, feeding support, respiratory support, control for infections, just those basic things that would make him comfortable. Moving on to our next part, I thought we might discuss his delivery and NICU care. First, tell us about his delivery, and then we can talk about the next few days afterwards. So I mentioned initially that everything went great until around 30 weeks as far as the pregnancy goes. My blood pressure started going up by 33 weeks. I had preeclampsia, and my OBGYN knew that we wanted to keep Samuel inside as long as possible to give him the best chance of any life he might have. And so he let me have a lot of 24-hour urine samples, a lot of blood work, a lot of bed rest orders, and then eventually at 34 weeks, we had to have an emergency C-section. My other pregnancies had all been full-term, vaginal deliveries, no health issues for myself or the baby. So this was a very different road. I woke up one morning and was feeling flu-like. We decided we probably should go in and get my blood pressure checked. I was admitted within a few hours, put on magnesium, and by 5 o'clock was told I was going to have a C-section in an hour. So all of this on top of us expecting Samuel not to live but a few hours. So it was a whirlwind to say the least. It was like my worst nightmare. I just lived through it and then it was about to end and we were going to start a whole nother one. So that was up to the delivery and I guess after a emergency C-section, she did not stay with Samuel. She was being tended to by her team. Samuel was born. He was pink. He wasn't really making any noise, uh, but when they held him up, he looked very healthy. In fact, he was 6 pounds, 15 ounces at 34 weeks, which is about 2 pounds larger than a typical 34-week baby. So that's pretty big for a normal baby. It's huge for a trisomy 13 baby. So like I said, he initially wasn't breathing. He did require some respiratory support. They started with a more non-invasive version, I guess the CPAP is what they were using, and then ultimately later he ended up being intubated. After he was on respiratory support, they whisked us off to the NICU, and that was what anybody experienced in the NICU. It's very traumatizing, which is exactly what they talked about in that uh, meeting uh, with Dr. Mann and Dr. Stansfield. We were like, well, how do we just kind of keep this calm and And Dr. Stansfield just said, it's going to be traumatizing. It's all going to be traumatizing, and it's going to be okay. And then over the next few days, we did a lot of the normal new parent stuff. We escorted my parents and Jenny's mom and my brother into the NICU, taking lots of pictures with him. I even remember Jenny changing his diaper. Normally, this is uh, just the first of many times that you would do these things in a newborn's life. But for us, there was this sense of urgency. There was this, we better go ahead and take this picture with his uncle. There was this, let's get all the pictures and videos with the grandparents as we can, because we just didn't know if we were going to have an opportunity to get any more. We didn't know what his life was going to look like. So it was just, we better get all this done while he's living. There was just this different sense of urgency to get those experiences, to get those memories made. Along the lines of kind of caring for Samuel in the NICU, uh, you can take a very passive approach and just let them render all the care. And anytime he needs a diaper, you say, hey, looks like he's wet or he's fussy. And you can do that. And we were doing some of that. But one particular story comes to mind. 
So there was this nurse named Paige that came over to feed Samuel and she pulled us to the side and said, I really want to show you how to check placement of the NG tube. And Jenny and I just look at each other and we're like, is this nurse crazy? Does she not know that Samuel has trisomy 13 and he's on his deathbed? Like, why would she want to teach us how to check placement? And so we we kind of brushed her off because we're like, there's no way we're going to need to do that. That's what you're going to do. And he's never going to leave the NICU. And so why do we need to learn this? Little did we know that that I would end up replacing that NG tube probably 20 different times through the period that he had that at home. It was just such this weird experience to have someone want to teach us those things for later on when we didn't think there would be a later on. So something you said earlier is that was an overwhelming experience. And I can't imagine going through that, being 34 weeks pregnant, waking up one morning, you have a baby later that same day, and then all of a sudden your baby's being whisked away to the NICU in this controlled chaos that it is. I can't imagine the pressure that you guys were feeling to try to work in all of those experiences with him because you just didn't know how long you'd have with him. So next, I want to focus in on those first few weeks. How did your goals of care for him change? How did you think about wanting to do what you felt was best for him without causing undue harm? We didn't want to fix him or make him normal. What became our filter was we wanted to deal with any acute infections that arose. And so that frame of work came about after a conversation with Dr. Bell, who's the palliative care pediatrician at MCG. And so she helped us just process how to make decisions in the NICU. And so he had a UTI. We wanted to treat the UTI. And again, it was our definition of comfort beginning to change. You could think about an earache. An ear infection would cause discomfort for any child. UTI causes discomfort. And so that was kind of our grid for how to make decisions as we were in the NICU is a lot of it was we wanted to deal with anything that was making him sick. We were not at a place where we were wanting to fix a part of who he was. We weren't considering having any major surgeries during that first few weeks. It was, he's having trouble breathing. Can we support him in breathing Is there an infection? Let's treat the infection. And so all those things, we were just wanting to help him be who he was and not particularly trying to change any of that. So during our first meeting, I learned about something called a cuddle cot. Even though that didn't apply to Samuel's case, do you mind telling our listeners more about this and why it might be helpful when attending certain high-risk deliveries? So I also learned about the cuddle cot early on in Samuel's diagnosis. So what a cuddle cot is, is a specially designed bassinet with a cooling pad at the bottom. The point of this is to essentially help preserve the child's body after they have passed away. Oftentimes what happens is in a very traumatic delivery or a quick demise of the child, there's just a lot of grief and a lot of trauma Having time to deal with that oftentimes requires sending the child's body away. And they'll tell you they're taking it away. Where they're taking it is to the morgue. When you want to spend time with your child, they will bring it back from the morgue because at room temperature, the body often degrades. What the cuddle cot design is, is to allow parents to grieve in their own time. 
It allows parents to have the child in the room with them in a peaceful setting where they get to spend that time with their child. And I would also like to add that we spent the entire pregnancy expecting to need to use the cuddle cot. And so we had thought through sending him away to the morgue and how long would we want to be with him and clothes we would want him to wear. So even though we are sitting on the other side, we spent six months feeling like that was going to be us and processing how that might play out. You know, it's really insightful hearing how having those extra few minutes with your baby by using something like a cuddle cot is cool for me. And, and for our listeners, we'll be sure to put a link to the cuddle cot so you can learn more about it and potentially have that available to your patients. So next, I want to move forward in this story. Let's focus on those last couple of weeks in the NICU. I know there was considerable time that you were concerned that he would not be able to come off respiratory support. Tell us what changed and how your outlook for his care changed as it became more clear that he was going to be able to be discharged home. He was in the NICU for about two months. And after about the first four weeks, Dr. Stansfield came to us and said, we need to have a conversation. In that conversation, he was talking about Samuel's respiratory status, that essentially he was no longer intubated, but he was maxing out all the settings. And if he got any worse, he'd have to be intubated again. And that they have done everything they could think of to help him get stronger. And so this gets to what they were talking about in that first initial meeting of let's stabilize him and figure out who he is and see what he can do. And so essentially we got to that point where they were saying, we think this is all he can do. At this point, the decision was, are we going to talk about getting a trach or are we going to transition to taking him off respiratory support with the assumption that there was going to be a pretty quick decline and at this point, Jenny and I had kind of taken the trach off the table. It wasn't something that we were particularly interested in doing. And so we started thinking through what would that look like to take him off that respiratory support that he was getting. I mean, I remember looking at my work schedule and looking at family schedules and literally picking a date and telling our family they need to come into town because we were going to start weaning support. Initially, the plan was to wean pretty fast so that we could get him on the floor here at MCG. The restrictions for family visitation, this was in the middle of flu season and before COVID, but uh, in the middle of flu season... And so our children, which there are three other children, and our family were not going to be able to come visit him and be with us during that time. So hence the transitioning quickly to the floor. And so we essentially made a plan. So at some point during the waiting period to start initiating that plan, Samuel developed a fever. And they realized that he had a urinary tract infection. And this was the second urinary tract infection that he had. And so they treated it a little differently, maybe a different antibiotic or a longer course of antibiotics this go-round. And Samuel changed. His ability to breathe changed. He seemed to be able to have the settings turned down a little. We would come in after uh, being with him that night. We'd come in the next morning and we'd look at the ventilator and, and the settings were down. And we'd look at the nurse and the nurse would look at us and be like, that's him. He's doing it. 
And so it quickly turned into, I don't know that he's going to the floor. I think he's going home. They kept turning down settings and he kept meeting those expectations. Instead of having this quick weaning period, they slowed it and did it over a a few weeks. But at the end of it, he was on room air and not needing any respiratory support. Things just changed completely. We were bringing home a kid versus trying to get him to the floor so he could die there. Wow, what a change in his outlook, thinking about scheduling a way that all your family can be with him before he dies to thinking, wow, he is going to be going home with us. I hope that you've enjoyed my conversation so far with Wiley and Jenny Purcell. We're so thankful for them sharing their story of their son, Samuel, who has trisomy 13. Please stay tuned for part two of this discussion coming up soon. Until then, thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. We look forward to speaking with you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.